Welcome to The Jury Is Out, a podcast for trial attorneys who want to sharpen their skills and better serve their clients. Your co-hosts are John Simon, founder of The Simon Law Firm, Tim Cronin, personal injury trial attorney at The Simon Law Firm, and St. Louis attorney Eric Veith. Welcome to another episode of The Jury Is Out. I'm Eric Veith. I'm Tim Cronin. I'm John Simon. We're going to continue our conversation about the anatomy of a product liability case. Can, can I just go back in time for a, John, I've been around for many decades. Could you describe how it was like 30, 40 years ago? Has it changed in the terms of the extent of these discovery battles? Yes. For, so in 30 years ago, if we had a very document intensive case, we would have maybe five or 10 boxes of documents, maybe six or 7,000 pages or 12,000 pages. And so now what we get is we ask for information and somehow at the end of the day, we have 380,000 pages of documents produced to us in a single automotive product case. Or millions. Or millions. With, and, with millions of documents. And, of course, 90% don't have a damn thing to do with what we're talking about. I've actually had manuals produced in, in automotive product cases of different vehicles. I have multiple manuals produced to me. Something we always hear at Motions to Compel when we're asking for more documents, the first thing out of opposing counsel's mouth is usually... Judge, we've produced 150,000 documents. And we go, and none of it has really anything. It's a bunch of stuff that's on the fringes of what we asked for, but none of the actual testing of this model, I'm sure. And, and it's not nicely organized for you, usually. The document dump. And, but I think if you look at the rules, one of the requests for production, I think at least in Missouri, there's a requirement, isn't there, that they need to produce them in some type of organized fa- Oh, in Either, the order that they keep them, in the right? In order that they keep them, or they have to respond point by point. I often have to follow up, but that is the law. You cannot just say see responsive documents. You need to identify by Bates number which ones are responsive to which, which request. But it is a battle to get documents, but if you persist, you're gonna, you'll get most of what you need, I think. Not sure you're ever going to get everything that's out there, but yeah. I've, I've had, I can't tell you how many cases I have had where they have objected, the defendant has objected to documents in a product case, and we go up to court, we get a motion to compel, it's granted, it's ignored, we go back up with a second motion to compel, the judge enters another motion, gives them a certain number of days to get it, and then we don't get it, and then finally we'll file a motion for sanctions because they're not producing it, and then this has happened to me more than once. When we get to the motion point in the case, then all of a sudden new counsel is substituted in, not the old counsel, and new, and the new counsel that comes in says, we don't have any of those documents, okay? And I've had that I've had that happen to me. I've gone back up to the same court that had already filed, entered three different orders for them to produce it, and it was an automobile, it was a product liability auto case, and the, I asked the judge for a remedy, and the judge said, what do you want me to do? They're telling me they don't have them. And the judge made a comment that I think it looks silly, and it was testing documents is was what they yeah. were. It was a seatbelt case, and they were testing documents, and it was an automobile manufacturer on the record telling the court that they didn't keep testing records that they had done on the subject vehicle. And the only remedy that's really available at that point is I think the court needs to let you in trial present how that all played out, that actual discovery. That was We ended up yeah. trying that case for a few days, and it got settled, yeah. but... That did come out, and the judge allowed us to get into the fact that it's silly. This that, order was granted. I mean, this order was right. granted. This Who in the world would believe that, that an automobile manufacturer doesn't keep testing documentation? Well, we had, in another case, that you and Johnny ended up going to Japan in, we had three or four motions to compel 
they were granted. The lawyer said they don't exist, slipped up at one point and vindicated they did exist. We got another depot. We found out they did exist. Then they were ordered to produce them. We were late in the case and they were sanctioned. And the remedy was they had to pay for our costs to go. They produced the, the documents after the discovery deadline was finished. In Japanese. And they were all in Japanese. After our experts were and So we got them 30 days before trial, and all the documents were produced to us in Japanese. And the cost of translating them it's was like $30,000. Yeah, it was $30,000, $40,000. So what we did is we had somebody just read them, not translate them for us, but we told them what we were looking for, and they went through, read them, and then we pulled out. I don't know, maybe 50 or 60 pages or 100 pages that were relevant had those translated. But again, this was done because nine times out of 10, we wouldn't even have seen them at the end of the case. I think one of the keys here, one of the, the real hurdles in, in, in product cases is you're asking for documents and you don't know what they're called. You're asking for documents and you really don't know enough to even know what to ask for. As a threshold issue for discovery, you need to take a deposition. You need to get enough information that's, so that you know how things are kept, how things are recorded, and what they're called. What are the reports called? What are the forms called in the design process? What are the different stages? Who's involved? What's developed? And you really need to get the, the process of how the company does things and how they record things and what documents are created so that you have enough information to know what you're asking for. Is there such a thing as more of a simple product liability case, or are you always going to run into all of this stuff? There's simpler ones. You can look up pretty easily and try to, if, if the product is recalled. But even then, you're going to have huge discovery fights because they don't always admit defect for recalled products. I had a case like that recently. I think at trial, they ultimately would have. But you still have to get in to all of the notice and testing and profit stuff for your punitive claim. So, there are ones where the concept and the issue and the feature of the product is much more simple. I don't think I've had a product case where I did not have extensive written discovery fights. John, have you? No, not really. I can't think of a simple product case. And I will say this, that some of them are 10 times more complex and time intensive than others. Like auto manufacturing. But none of them are what I would compare to an average med mail case or certainly not an auto case or a truck case or something like that. Just because of what you need to prove, you really need to look at how the, how it was designed. How, but here's the thing, too. If you're trying to show that it's a bad design, you need to get into other incidents. You have to have other incidents to show, and then you get into what other circumstances. You need to develop the circumstances of the other incidents for notice. But it is a recalled product where it was for the exact thing that happened, and it was recalled 10 years before. They'd been making it for 15 years before that. The recall notice indicated there were hundreds of other incidents they knew about at the time. And I could have stopped there, Eric, but I argued to the court. I needed the documentation of all of that stuff. And I got more information and I found out that there was actually like five times more incidents by the time of the recall than they reported to the government. And it really pumps up the like the value of the case. So there are situations where it may seem simple and I don't need to do all of this. And in those cases, I think you find if you do it, you're going to find way more stuff that bumps up the value of the client's case if you dig into it. We had a case, and it was an automotive product case where uh, they had tested uh, the model previous to the model that, that we were talking about. There was the, the model that came out right before the model involved in our case. We had to fight like hell to get testing information. We got that testing information. 
And it turns out that the previous model, none of the models had passed the internal test. And so then, obviously, the we're, we're looking for the subsequent model, and the model involved in our case wasn't tested. In other words, we had information through discovery that the model at issue was was never even tested. It wasn't even tested because they knew from from the earlier model it probably wasn't going to pass. But again, that was years of of work and motions to compel and following up with document requests to get to the bottom of it. But as I said, we don't know what the theory is going to be going in. We know what the result is. We know the product failed. We know it didn't work the way it was supposed to work. It wasn't designed to be safe. But the question is, why? Was it because they didn't test it? Was it because the people designing it weren't qualified to... That's another whole issue that came up in a case where I had a, a piece of equipment, construction equipment, that failed. And it was an obvious failure. And we took a bunch of depositions, did discovery for a couple of years in the case, and we find out that the person that designed and certified this piece of equipment did was not an engineer. And no engineer ever certified it. Yeah. And it was recalled. ended up being a recalled product. It's... So we're going to get into, it seems like we're already getting really into written discovery, but we're going to get into the details, like the ty specific types of things you need to ask for and what to do in the corporate rep depot. But a basic framework that is a little bit different than other types of cases is you're going to be looking at regulations, industry standards, other similar incidents, and defendants' knowledge of the defect, what they knew and when by way of testing and different types of things. But let's back up a little bit about what you need to do for pre-suit investigation, because more than a lot of other types of cases, you might be doing a lot of work to try to figure out, to have the case set up well and figure out what you need to do before you can, an auto accident case, you can just file it, right? A med mal case, you get the medical records in, you have an expert review it, you can just file it. There's not a lot you can do. That's not really the case for a product liability claim. Would you agree, John? Yeah, I think there's a lot of what I would call informal discovery. You need to immediately make sure you have the pot product preserved, whether that's in the um, possession of the defendant, your client, um, someone else, whether it's at, a lot of times in auto cases, we're dealing with a totaled car that's at somewhere that it's going to be destroyed, and you have to go purchase it. Right. So you need to get preservation letters out. Make sure you secure the product. Buy it if you need to. Yeah, I'm sitting here laughing because we had we're always so careful in the product cases to preserve the vehicle. And if you're going to transport it from the scene or from where it was stored, you need to make sure that you have good, competent people doing that. We had a, a car that it was a roof crush claim, I believe. And we had finally taken all of this great care to get the car to the storage facility that we use here in St. Louis. So we ended up having the car safely in storage. And we have, fortunately, we had plenty of photographs and everything. And so I think the other side's expert was coming to look at the vehicle. And they wanted to put it on the lift so they could see it get, get under it or around it or whatever. And when it was being lifted up the, at the facility, it actually got knocked off. It was a forklift or something and fell and fell and was further Further, I'm sitting here laughing about it now, but believe me, I wasn't laughing about it when it happened. It was it was a major issue at the time, but the good news was the defense expert was there with us when, when it happened, and also again there were all kinds of photos that were taken yeah. up before before that had happened. But you need to preserve and secure the product to the extent that exists, or at least show that you made immediate efforts to do and any other evidence that might be involved in it. You need to send out FOIA requests for 
police reports, photos, investigative materials from any police department or governmental agency responsible or that responded or investigated. Is there a chain of custody concern like there is in criminal yep. cases so, where yes. you need to yep. make sure you have witnesses at every that's stage? That's a great point. Yeah. That's a great point. Yeah, absolutely you do because they can argue the plaintiff can't prove that this is in the same condition it was at, in at the time of the accident, which means they can't prove that feature of the car was in whatever condition they need to prove that's similar to that this time of sale. So yeah, whether by, I mean, you better try to get affidavits as soon as you can or chain of custody documents and then take those depots. So once you have it secured, you get requests out to get all the, all, like any kind of reports, photos, investigative materials. You wanna try to educate yourself about the product, which can be done in various ways, right? You wanna understand the product, understand the industry. Just get on the internet and Google it, go on the defendant, potential defendant's website, look up if there's recalls, look up if there's anything about the product on the Consumer Product Safety Commission. There's various ways. Look at trade journals, government publications, because you need to get an inspection set up, probably, and you want to try to figure out what kinds of experts you need so that it costs money, right? You don't get there with a particular type of expert and they go, ah, I think this is actually like a materials science issue, not a mechanical engineering issue, and then you got to get another one there. Maybe you would just bring multiple times, but you need to get an inspection set up with an expert or multiple experts, whether that's mechanical engineers, fire cause and origin and safety people, material science people, it depends on the product. If there's any chance of destruction, destructive testing or anything happening to it, you should probably give notice to the other side so they can have an attorney, an expert or representative present as well. And I think depending on the product, buy one. Yeah. Well, just buy it. We've done that with, remember the hospital bed cases yeah. that we handled? They were electric hospital beds that had a habit of catching on fire. It's done in auto case. And, buy and, the same model. Right, we buy the same model. We'll put it in store. We just did that in a, a week ago where buy the same one. It gives you a chance to look at the product. Actually, if you buy the similar product, you can disassemble it. Your expert can take it apart, can look at it, can test it. You know, really? the other thing, too, is is get competitors' models. For that, alternative designs. Right, for alternative designs. Yeah. And even the same defendant, you can look at earlier models, subsequent models. What have they changed? Go online. As we know, you can find anything that, that can be found. Anything that's out there to be found, you can find it nowadays. If it's an auto, look at the National Highway Traffic and Safety Administration or National Transportation Board. You can find standards, crash testing and statistics, safety ratings, all kinds of stuff. U.S. Patent and Trademark Office, you might be able to find alternative designs. There's a wealth of information. How about the FDA recalls, adverse events, event reports? I fight to do the following thing more than I used to, and I'm always appreciative that other lawyers are doing the same. We're talking about these discovery fights, right? And, John, you specifically mentioned we have different cases that are about the same product with the same defendant where we've gotten all the documents in the first one and they're fighting about letting us use them in the second one. I fight to have any protective orders be sharing protective orders, and that's becoming much more common, where plaintiffs, it's part of it that plaintiff's lawyers can share them with other plaintiff's lawyers that have active pending cases that are about the same thing. So look up online if you can find other filed cases about the same product, call those lawyers and ask them if there's a protective order, what they can tell you, if they can share the documents or depots with you. You may be able to get, have your whole case laid out and everything you know you're gonna need before you even file it. If you can find another attorney who has handled a similar case, that's pay dirt. That's, as a matter of fact, 
That's one of the first things that I would recommend you do in a product case. I've gotten them where they have sharing protective orders and I get all the stuff and I produce it to the defendant in discovery. In one case, it was an identical case that another attorney had handled already and had done extensive discovery. And what I did is I took, they weren't willing to produce the same documents in, in my case, but what I did is I took the same discovery and served it <laughs> word for word. And one, one actually was a set of requests for admissions and so I, I literally got a very comprehensive set of requests for admissions that had to do with other incidents, other similar incidents. And it was over, it was hundreds of them. And they attached the, the police reports from them. And what I did was I just filed them in my case. And of course, there was a lawyer on the other side who was fairly cooperative. And we ended up stipulating to some things and allowing us to use information that had already been developed in the other case. But just you can really get a jump start in product cases by doing all these various different ty types of things we're talking about. You want to really know as much as you can about the product before you're halfway through the case taking discovery because the lawyer on the other side, has they have a client that can answer all their questions. Just think about this. Say you have whatever, a drill, a lantern, whatever the product is, you can go online you can read all there is about it. You can trade the, journals. The, the trade right. the manuals. The manuals that come with the product, those that can be found online. Other lawsuits. Once you find another lawsuit, as you said, talk Call to that the lawyer, lawyer and uh, find out who his experts were. Yeah. A lot of pre-suit discovery. And then once you're ready to file, make sure you consider all possible defendants because the company that designed it might not be the same company that manufactured it. That exists, especially with foreign companies. Or component um, parts. There may be component parts. Different manufacturers. So you really need to try to... You may not know all of that in the beginning, so you need to make sure you focus in your early discovery on identifying whether this particular defendant is responsible for all aspects of what your claims are. Like the particular components, whether they designed it, whether they manufactured it, whether they're the ones who sold it, or they have a different entity that distributes and sells. So you need to make sure... You get them all in the case in the beginning and do a comprehensive discovery to make sure you have all of the right ones. Another thing, too, that's important is we talked about industry standards and regulations, and it, it's important to, to know the distinction. The, the regulations are, are binding law. They, in, in a particular industry, for instance, the, the automotive industry, the Federal Motor Vehicle Safety Regulations just that. They're regulations. They need to be followed. They can't sell a car without complying with those minimum requirements, whereas industry standards are, they don't have the force and effect of law, but they are evidence of what the standard of care should be in the industry. And you can use them to show they didn't comply with them, therefore they were negligent, or, or the product was defective. Or you I'm, may be dealing with what them trying to say, we complied with the industry standards, and then you need to dig into figuring out okay, who developed those industry standards? And a lot of times you're going to find out this company and one of their competitors that has an interest in having the industry standards be rather lax, developed them and then uses them as a defense in lawsuits to say we complied with the standards when really they're not adequate standards. First of all, they need to comply with the regulations. And if they don't, it's a negligence per se count. And that will allow you to submit without a showing of negligence. Mm -hmm. The issue would be, did they comply with the standard if they just like running a red light? The ordinance says you stop at a red light. If you ran the red light, that's negligence per se, and the only issue is causation. And violation of industry standards or regulations is also often per se evidence that allows you to submit on punitive damage. With so regulations, to look at them. I always ask for those in discovery. 
get an expert early in every case. Ask your expert, what regulations apply to this product? Get the defendant in, in discovery to admit what regulations apply to your product. Almost every industry, and no matter what it is, has some form of regulation, whether it's the, the railroad industry, the trucking industry, pharmaceutical industry, automobile, medical devices, and these are all things that, that must be followed and can mind their minimum regulations. And consult with your expert early and often about what regulations and standards might be out there because you may not be able to find them. Some other ones that uh, come to mind are the National Electric Safety Code, the National Electric Code, the Consumer Product Safety Commission, the Food and Drug Administration, NHTSA, National Highway Traffic and Safety Administration. A lot of standards, regulations or standards that you need to know what they are and how they apply to the product at issue in your case. Almost every profession at this point has some kind. Physicians have professional organizations or societies for neurologists or orthopedic surgeons. The same thing exists usually for products. ASME, American Society of Mechanical Engineers, there are all kinds of industry standards that apply to all kinds of different products. So one of the things about standards, specifically regulations, they're a double-edged sword. In other words, the, almost every product that you have is going to comply with the regulations. If they didn't comply with the regulations, they wouldn't be out there, for instance, yeah. in an automobile. And what we run into is the defendant trying to argue that because we complied with the regulations, the case should be, uh, the dismissed. Case should be dismissed. And I've had cases where we're dealing with roof crush, and there are no regulations related to roof crush or regulation specific to a, a component yeah. of the the seatbelt. And they're saying, and we complied with all regulations, and you're saying, there isn't one about this. So you, you need to really force that issue, get the defendant to ask them, isn't it true? Or I've had in, in trials where the defense lawyer will stand up and say, this car complies with every federal regulation. And what they're implying is that because there is no regulation for the particular issue in your case, they don't have to. Do that it. They, it, it's not deemed like necessary. Okay, they're trying to argue or infer that the federal government looked at this and decided that there really doesn't need to be a regulation on this yeah. component because it's not. It's not. It's safe the way it is, or it doesn't need to be regulated. And then we get into like lobbying efforts they made to that particular agency. <laughs> but so you know, what I do too with regulations is I'll ask the defense expert can you please design a roof on an automobile that will fail the federal standard? Okay, and I can't. Why not? Because there aren't any. Does you that know. mean that you don't have to make it safe? No. We're talking about industry standards here. There was an industry st industry standard, and it was a, a football helmet case that we had. And the federal standard, they had some type of test, drop test, where they, they measured the, the severity. There was a severity index that, you know, based on a drop test for a, a head injury criteria. Mm -hmm. And they had passed that industry standard, and we looked a little bit further into it with our expert, and our expert basically said, look, when they test the helmet, the padding inside of the helmet is dry. And if you wet it, if you spray it down and wet it, it won't pass the test. And, of course, when you have it on your head and you're playing in a football game, what's going to happen, right? You're going to be sweating. We had another case... And it had to do with, it was uh, children's clothing, cotton clothing. It was pajamas, uh, kids' pajamas or pajama shirt. And it was a fire case. And it was had to do with the flammability of the clothing. And again, there was a standard. We had an expert in the case. And this expert, in order to show how 
lame the standard was, and it really wasn't what it needed to be. It just wasn't, it was meaningless. He created a shirt, a night shirt, out of a copy of the New York Times, and it passed the flammability standard that was in <laughs> operation. So here's the basic outlook, the basic message on this. If you've got a product, there are likely regulations. They have the force of law. You need to know what they are. Or standards. Yeah, or standards. Standards, the regulations and standards. Regulations have the force of law. Standards don't. You need to know what they are. You need to look specifically at whether or not they comply to the specific aspect of the product you're dealing with, because a lot of times they don't. And then if they do, you need to look really closely at what those cover, what those don't cover, who was involved in, in creating them or promulgating them, and you'll find it's industry. The industry is the ones, they're the ones that are, are involved in drafting. They're to use as defenses in lawsuits. Oftentimes. So. And then beyond that, you need to do discovery. And again, we're going to get into specific types, like a request and discovery, of whether the defendant has standards that are either stricter or more lax than those industry standards or government regulations. So we've talked about this a little bit, other similar incidents. I think it is this and testing are the most important categories of information in a product case, particularly in a defective design litigation. I, I agree. If I it's agree. a manufacturing issue, it might be a one-off, but in a design claim or possibly a warning claim, other incidents, testing. And so what are they relevant to? What is it relevant to? It's relevant to show notice of the defect. It's relevant to show that the product is unreasonably dangerous. It goes to show the ability to correct a known defect, the magnitude of danger, the products, the product is unsafe for its intended use. It goes, it's relevant to causation. And what you are arguing it is relevant to affects the admissibility of it because the there are standards about how similar it ha the incident has to be to get it in and the purpose for which you are arguing it is probative may relax the standard of substantial similarity. The standard's different depending on what you're using it to show. Correct. For instance, if you're using it to show that the product is defective and unreasonably dangerous, you probably need to have a more of more similarity between the other incident you want to get in and the incident in your case. The, However, the facts and circumstances are substantially similar to the, right. your case. The way I would describe that in, in simple terms is you need to be able to show that the same defect in your case caused the other accident as caused the same caused the thing, same to, thing happen. to happen. Right. For the same model right. vehicle. Same model, same thing. Now, if you're trying to get in another incident to show notice to the def to the company to the defendant it you don't need to show substantial similarity you just need to show enough of a similarity that it would have put the company on notice of hey there's something here maybe we should look into yeah and so for your negligence claim for example or for your punitive claim if you're using it for notice any knowledge or warning of the defect before the subject occurrence can aid the jury in determining whether the defendant was negligent or whether they had notice of it. So the standard for admissibility for notice is less stringent than the multiple part substantial similarity test if just for defect. Yeah, and I think under Missouri law, it's any knowledge or warning of the defect which the defendant have had before the subject occurrence 
will clearly aid the jury in determining whether or not the defendant was negligent under the circumstances. The standard is a little different for the strict liability claim as opposed to the negligence claim. The negligence claim, the standard for punitives, again, is a little bit more lax. It's any kind of notice that there was a reasonable likelihood that someone would be injured. For punitives, it's notice of the defect, but you have to demonstrate that the defendant had actual knowledge of the defect and danger at the time the product was sold for the strict liability claim. So again, you really have to get into other incidents in order to do that. And I think their relevance for some other things too, foreseeable use, causation, if the defense is impossibility to refute that. The other thing too is it depends on what kind of position the defendant takes in the case if the corporate rep is overly aggressive and taking the position that this is a perfectly safe product. And what happened is impossible. Right. It, it, everything comes in. A lot of, a lot of the, the scope of what comes in broadens the same way with the defense expert. I like it when they come in and instead of saying this product is not unreasonably dangerous or defective, if they go beyond that and start talking about how this is perfectly safe and there's nothing wrong with this, then it opens the door yeah. to get some incidents what in that may otherwise you might not be able to get in. Yeah, I agree. What you're saying is impossible. This isn't a foreseeable use. You, it really expands, I think, your ability to get other incidents in. So we've really been talking generally about the anatomy of a product liability case, different considerations, things like that. We are going to focus next time we come back on building the foundation and building your product liability claim through specific types of discovery. And we hope you join us. This has been another episode of The Jury Is Out. I'm Eric Feef. I'm Tim Cronin. I'm John Simon. We'll see you next time. The Jury Is Out is brought to you by The Simon Law Firm. At the Simon Law Firm PC, we believe in the power of pooling resources in order to create powerful results. We often lend our trial skills and experience to lawyers around the country to achieve better results for their clients. Our attorneys welcome the opportunity to work with you on your case, offering vast resources, seasoned litigators, and a sterling reputation. You can contact us at 314-241-2929. And if you enjoyed the podcast, feel free to share your thoughts with John, Tim, and Eric at comments at thejuryisout.law. And subscribe today because the best lawyers never stop learning.